0: Would you open your Bibles to the Book of Luke, chapter twenty-four? We have been on a eight-week journey, just talking about why we believe what we believe. And maybe you noticed, or maybe you didn't, but you know, apologetics historically—it uh, it feels to me—but this is not really a fair assessment. It's just my assessment from what, the way I experienced it. Is it's usually somebody who's mean, uh, crunchy no fun at a party, uh, usually a male. And, and, and it's set up as, now this is how you win an argument with your friend that doesn't know Jesus. And so it's a lot of, and here's what you say to them if they say this, and here's what you say to them if they say that. I just need somebody to say, well, what, do I, what if I'm asking these questions? What do I say to me if I think that? Like, what do I, how do I? And what I've hoped to do for these past few weeks is just a journey to say to those of you that already have, uh, you haven't struggled with these things, man, Congratulations. Wish that I was you. And for those of us that you, you kind of have to make things make sense, I wanted to. This has really been about not you trying to win an argument with anybody. It's really about what Jude says, which is just build your faith, like to contend for your faith in your own heart. And as we started out, we're going to end. And meaning, the first week, if you might remember this, we said that the, the human, the way we exist, we have like three separate ways that we process information one is in your heart, your, your feelings, your emotions. This feels, you know, this. and My wife is that. She's a feeler. Now, she is, sadly for her, perhaps, uh, I've wondered, you know, you talk about a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm being blessed because whatever. There's also the idea that, you know, suffering for the sins of your parents, like she's being punished. And so if she's being punished, maybe it's by being married to me and that I'll take one for the team gladly. But she's a feeler. I'm a thinker. I, I think intellectually about these things and I can get in my head for a long time. And then there are others of you that you're just, your gut, man. You lead a company, and you just, this just feels right. We're just going to go with this. We're, you know. And here's the thing. There are all three of those things in all of us as humans, okay? But some of us lead with this one and lead with that one. The, man, the awesome news is that the Bible deals with all three of them. So when you see 1 Peter 3, verse 15, which says to be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. You know that one? It's usually most apologetics websites have that as their main thing. Peter is talking to uh, people who are suffering for their faith, people who were being tortured. And, and he's saying, the, the, you guys that are suffering, and, and you, but you're still being faithful, people are going to want to know why. How is it possible that you survived this, this concentration camp level of suffering and you held on? Emotions are being tugged. You're ready to give them an answer when they ask that question because it's in their heart, their emotions are being tugged at in that. And then there is the gut, like the, man, I just, that just feels right. When you hear Phyllis's story, read it. There's a little bit of that apologetic in it. Man, this just feels right. Because what did Paul do in Acts chapter 26? He stands in front of Agrippa. And he says, this is my apologia, my defense of my faith. And he doesn't put together a, a intellectually, you know, it, it's just a story. Hey, Agrippa, I was, a, I was a jerk. I was killing Christians. And suddenly my life has been changed. I saw the risen Jesus. And now here we are. And from the gut... He, he tells the story. But Paul also, on a regular basis, the book of Acts will say, he went to the temple and he talked about his faith. He argued with them about their faith. He debated with them about this and that and the other. And He, he used an intellect. All three are represented in Scripture. All three are important and all three are necessary. And So I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 24 about the resurrection and I want you to notice how Jesus is actually using all Three of these in, in these uh, in these verses that we read. But by the way, this divides into four sections, verses one through 53. Verses 1 through 11 is like uh, 12 maybe. It's actually when he appears at the 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 empty tomb. The women see the tomb and they see an angel. So that's the uh, the tomb. And then the next one, the next section starts in verse 13. And it, it talks about the Emmaus Road, these two disciples that Jesus appears to. Then the next section is Jesus appearing in Jerusalem. And then the final section, verses 50 through 53, is the ascension. So there's four separate appearances of Jesus here. And by the way, there's three themes that we're going to cover that each one of these four sections talk about. But I want you to notice as I read, I'm just going to read some of these verses for the sake of time. But notice Jesus employing the heart, the gut, and the head in these. So uh, let's start in verse 9. So Jesus is risen, the women have gone to the tomb, and they found it empty. They've uh, they've seen an angel, and so anyway, they came back from the tomb. This is them running back. They have seen an empty tomb. They've seen an angel. They're going back to tell their friends what they just saw. Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others, and it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Now, they're telling the story. This is from the gut. This just feels right. But verse 11, but they didn't believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense to them. This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't fit anywhere in my head. But Peter, however, now Peter is someone who always appreciated nonsense, right? So he's headed to the tomb. I I really, I respect Peter and his appreciation for nonsense. So he runs to the tomb. Verse 12, he bends over and he sees strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering, thinking, wondering to myself what had happened, intellect. So, that's the first appearance. The next one is on the road to Emmaus. Two disciples, they're taking a walk. It's a seven-mile walk. It's like walking from here to Spring Hill, not short. But on the road, they, are encountered, they encounter this guy who is Jesus. They don't realize it at first. And I think there's a clue, by the way, when Paul talks about a seed that goes in the ground and it comes up something different, that, but it's the same, but it's different. Maybe there's a clue in that as to what it means to have a resurrected body. But here's a literal Jesus, a literal body, saying to them, First of all, they don't know who they're talking to, so they're giving him an update, like he's the only guy in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened. And he says to them, how foolish, intellectual, you are. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah, he's talking to him from that, suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, intellectually, right, he's explaining to them what was said in the scriptures concerned himself, And then verse 30, it says, and when he was at the table, he's like, hey, I'm hungry, right? Resurrecting is a lot of work. I'm famished. When he's at the table, he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. He gave it to them. They're like, oh, wait a minute. He's eating my gut. This is something right about this. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And then verse 32, they asked each other, were not our, listen to this word, hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? The third time we see an appearance is now back in Jerusalem. Jesus has disappeared here and appeared there, and they think they have Scooby-Doo level seen a ghost. (laughs) Look, this is a ghost. So they're frightened. They, They saw a ghost, and he said to them, why are you troubled, right, in their hearts, and do doubts arise in your mind's intellect? Look at my hands and my feet. Touch me and see. Does a ghost not have flesh and bones as you see here? Look at me. Your gut. You know this is right. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still didn't believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? Again, Jesus is showing them. It's not that he's hungry at this point. I want to show you that I'm here and that I'm eating, that I'm a real life body just like you. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so he could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you uh, what my father promised, but stay in the city until that comes. And then he takes him out to uh, the vicinity of Bethany, and he uh, is ascended unto heaven. And then verse 52, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Let's pray. Father, I'm woefully inadequate to deliver these types of complex thoughts, and so I pray that you will help me to uh, order my words today in a way that is not impressive, but impacting. And your word is a lamp. It's a light. It's everything that you promised. And I ask today that you would give us those that maybe are doubting and have real questions that you would Help us to feel safe to do that and to ask the questions, and on the other hand, those of us that are sure that we would understand and have mercy for those who aren't. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In
1: three, two, one. The resurrection of Jesus took everybody by surprise. The disciples weren't. We know of at least, well, if you followed somebody who you thought was the Messiah and he got killed, then that was it. We know of at least a dozen other messianic or prophetic movements within the 100 years either side of Jesus, they routinely ended with the death of the founder Um, and if if the movement wanted to continue they didn't say, oh he's been raised from the dead, they said let's find his brother or his cousin or somebody who can carry on this movement. We can see how those Jewish groups did that. This one did it differently. They had James, the brother of Jesus, as this great leader in the early church. Nobody said James was the Messiah, they said Jesus was the Messiah. Why? He's dead. they, They got him. Didn't you realize they crucified No, he was raised from the dead. The only way you can explain why Christianity began and why it took the very precise shape it was is, let's say it cautiously first, they really did believe he was bodily raised from the dead. And then if you take the second question and say, why would they believe that? You can go through all the theories that they found themselves forgiven that they had a fresh sense of the presence of god that this was cognitive dissonance etc and you bring all those theories to the actual facts that we know on the ground from the first century they just don't fit the only way you can explain the rise of the early christian belief that jesus was raised is that there really was an empty tomb they really did meet jesus alive again in a transformed body and the thing makes sense of course When I wrote a big book on this, my philosophy tutor from Oxford who was an atheist um, uh, read it and he said, great book, you really make the argument, he said, I simply choose to believe that there must be some other explanation even though I don't know what it was. I said fine, that's as far as I can take you. I can't bully you into saying therefore you must believe because to do that requires a change of world view. once you change the world view and say maybe there really is a creator God, and maybe this creator God really is sorting out this sad old world at last, then everything else makes sense in a way that it doesn't with any other possibility.
0: If you haven't read N. T. Wright's book on the resurrection, I wholeheartedly recommend that you do. When he says it was a big book, by the way, it wasn't like oh, we're bigger than the Rolling Stones. It's a huge. It's because it's an actual large book. Like, it's a really thick book. But he, le- he uncovers every stone, digs up every crack and crevice to show that whether you are a, a secular historian, uh, a Christian, or whatever, that you have to look at these the resurrection facts and think something happened here that changed history forever, split history in two. So I would recommend that you read that. For us today, I don't know if you saw this this week, it just came out that the... Um, they do this survey once a year or so, different organizations, but the rise of the nuns. Now, the nuns are not uh, you know, nuns in a convent, nuns, like nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. And what it means, nun, is that you're either atheist, you're agnostic, or you just don't have any religion at all, which technically is atheist or agnostic, but for some reason they have that third one. 34% of Americans now would fill out that and say, that's who I am. Now, what's interesting about that is just about 15, 20 years ago, it was only 10%, but today it's 34%. The number of Protestants in America, by the way, 33%. So it is for the first time crested that. Now, before everybody panics and thinks, oh, my God, we're all, it's going to be awful. When you put this on a global scale, the idea that Christianity is declining is 100% untrue. Uh, on, on a global scale, Christianity is rising in a way that has never been seen precedent, it is unprecedented, but it's arrogant and Western to say that, well, then Christianity is is dying out. It's actually just factually inaccurate. That said, you're looking at these numbers and you think, yeah, but this isn't just some number, this is my son. This is my daughter. This is my parents, my mom, my dad, my... This is me. And the question for us that's in front of us today is what does it mean to go from believing in something to none? Like, what is it? And when you look at it, when you say, what is the rise of the nuns, it is almost always predicated on, well, I don't really like this. The, the, the church has way too many hypocrites. Christians are hypocrites, so I'm not going to be a Christian. Which, parenthetically, I love, I think it was Rich Mullins that said this. You know, is the church full of hypocrites? Yes, and there's always room for one more, so please come. Like, you all, we're all hypocrites. So that's an inaccurate assessment, but the, the, they're hypocrites. Or that I don't like what the Bible says about this. Now, in our culture today, it's about sexuality, it's about sex, it's about uh, personal morals. That's that, now, 20 years ago, it was about money. That's what we, I'm not doing this. I, I'm money, money. It's, so if even you talk to marriage counselors in our. Area they'll say that it, you know, what happened in marriages in the, you know, over the years past was usually about a money discrepancy. Now it's, well, they've brought pornography into their bedroom. They've, they, there's sexual things happening in a marriage that are go beyond, and so we're saying that because I don't like what the Bible says about this, I'm going to do whatever I want, right? It, for a long time, the argument was I was born this way. Therefore, the argument has shifted to I want to choose whatever way. And so when I look at this and I say, and, and that might be you, and I would ask you to give me patience this morning, And then at the end, if you don't agree, that's absolutely fine. I'm not going to bully you. You're safe to question and wonder. But listen, any one of the objections that you have, the question that I would ask you in return is, is anything that you believe that I don't like about the Bible, that what the Bible teaches, forget the ethical teachings for a moment and say, if I don't like that, does it make the resurrection less true? Because if he resurrected, this opens up a whole new conversation. So we have to face that and say, Here's what I would say. The next time you get to a place where you get to fill out the form where you put your religion down, that if you put none beside it, that you put none because I don't believe he raised from the dead. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, we can all just go home. Or on the other hand, the reason I am a Christian is not because of his ethical teachings or his moral teachings. or Those are nice and it's beneficial, but he raised from the dead and therefore I mark Christian beside that form. That is really it. Christianity is the only faith that is based on a historical, provable fact. And so when I read this to you a minute ago, we're not going to break down each of these sections as much as I want to because the Bible was so laid out like that. I'm not going to lay it out in those sections. Instead, I'm going to show you that there are three themes that Jesus hits in each one of these that were relevant to them and they're relevant to us. And those three themes are really simple. Number one, the resurrection was literal. That is, if you're reading this, that's what he's saying. This is a literal resurrection. Number two, that it is the key to understanding all of the Scripture. And number three, that it is a, not just a nice thing that happened. It is a powerful message for the whole world. Okay? You guys ready? Let's saddle up. The resurrection is literal. That's what he was saying. Now, if you look at and you say, I don't believe these are God's words and this is errant, let's take that lens off and say, these are historical documents that are witness, ey- eyewitness testimony. And historians are mostly agreed on this at this point. These are at least documents that, that if you look at and think, okay, that's a, that's a testimony there. And you can look at what N.T. Wright says, and I would encourage you to dig in and to, to study and, and to see that. But there are, in these statements, this is, you can't possibly look at this and say, well, this was, they, they just meant this to be uh, metaphorical. Now, if you do say that, you are taking the text and saying then that the text is just a myth and a legend, and therefore, but it's still valuable, so I have to say that it has higher meaning. Now, that is being taught in schools here. David Lipscomb University, uh, their divinity school, teaches that the Bible is mostly, mostly based on legends. I just, first uh, first uh, session, Joe Beam was here, Dr. Joe Beam, he's a teacher at Lipscomb, and he's saying, I'm trying to get in to talk to them, and they won't let me talk to them. The Vanderbilt Divinity School teaches that most of the Bible is myth and legend. And so the point is, is if that's what you believe, then this all, everything changes, right? And what, say this out loud. There was a church in town. It doesn't matter which one. But here's what happens when you go down that road. There was an article recently about Bart Campolo, Tony Campolo's son, and him saying that, this is his exact words, progressive Christianity, the logical end of this is atheism. So when you hear when you hear someone talk about progressive Christianity what they're really saying is that I'm, everything you hear about in the news is really a sideshow what they're really saying is that the resurrection isn't literal that Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead and that we have these amazing lessons we can learn instead from that uh, a, a church here in town, their children 's pastor just last Easter, wrote a blog post that kind of went viral and what she was saying was that I, as a children's pastor, I struggle with this at Easter and so I'm not going to teach the children about the death and the resurrection and crucifixion because it would harm their psyches and so we don't want to teach that. So instead, but here's some good lessons we can teach them instead. That the point isn't that it was literal, the point is that uh, that these are good lessons we can learn. Now, my question for me is can I read this text and say that that's accurate or inaccurate? Like I'm reading it, this is a literal, here's fish, eat from, I'm, I'm here. This is a, he's saying to them, this is a literal resurrection. I am a literal resurrected body that you're looking at that is personal and real. And from this text, I don't see any other conclusion from it. And my question, I guess, for me, this is really what I'm saying from a whole different perspective. If the resurrection is literal and real, okay, is there anything that I don't like about the Bible? Is there anything that I don't like about the things that Jesus taught or didn't, whatever, that changes whether or not he rose from the dead? Because if it doesn't change that, then I have to start with whether or not he rose from the dead or not. And instead of me saying, well, I'm going to match the truth to my life, what I want it to be. Instead, I I take my life and match it to the truth. When Jesus called them fools, you're being foolish. All he's really saying to them is you're trying to make your life match up or your truth match up to your life instead of the other way around, which if you follow Henry Cloud at all, he's a great uh, psychologist and a Christian guy, and he says the definition of a wise person is you take the truth and you adapt your life to it. A fool is very simple. I hear the truth, but I don't like it, so I'm going to make the truth match what I want it to be. So when Jesus was saying you're being foolish, He wasn't being mean. He's just saying you're trying to make this match to what you think is real instead of what is real. And so if it is literal and if it is real, then we then have to deal with everything in the Bible. I can't pick and choose anymore. And here's why this is okay though, because everything in the Bible, interpreted through Jesus, suddenly makes sense. That it's the key to understanding all of Scripture. He says it here in Luke twenty-two forty-five. When he says, how foolish you are, you didn't understand it. Then he says he takes them back, and he says, this is what the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer? Didn't he have to suffer these things, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and he takes them all the way through. And suddenly, these things make sense in a way that they never did or even couldn't have before without a cross and a resurrection. The key to understanding it all. And if you think about Paul, our our good first apostle Paul, right? He's killing Christians. He's offended, and, and which is a good thing to think, by the way. If you're offended by Christianity, I promise you, you cannot be possibly as offended as Paul was. Or he's so angry about it. He's killing them, which I do not recommend. But what's he so offended by? He's looking for Messiah. The Jews are looking for Messiah. Jesus claims to be Messiah. Messiah, anointed one beloved, accepted by God, and here is this Messiah dying on a cross, shameful death, the lowest of the lows. God, why have you forsaken me? It can't possibly be him. How could you be that big of an idiot to spread these lies? And then he encountered the resurrected Christ. And a question for historians is, how did this guy that is historical, verifiable fact that was a A Pharisee, Christian killing. Suddenly something happened and he wasn't anymore. What is explainable except that what he said was true, that he saw a resurrected Christ and followed him and began to adapt his life to what the resurrection said instead of the other way around. The third thing. So you've got this message that you now understand in the scriptures, which by the way, Isaiah, if you're salt, makes no sense because half of it is a suffering servant and the other half is a conquering king. It makes sense in Jesus. The sacrificial system you hear people talk about, oh, but doesn't the Bible talk about goats and bulls? It makes no sense until you see a sacrificial atonement of Christ that is now resurrected for you. You can literally, every page of Scripture permeates Jesus from the beginning, from Abraham. How could God, if you're, if you're Saul, how could God bless all nations through Abraham? It makes no sense, except for, Through Jesus. The whole thing comes alive in Jesus. And then the message that we now have, this powerful message of what does a a literal resurrected body mean for us. And I think it means three things, and we're going to cover them really quickly. Number one, it means that your future, the message for you, the message we can take to the world, your future exists. Like there is a there, there, a literal future. Number two, that it's personal. Number three, it's absolutely certain. And number four, that it is beyond our wildest dreams. That is actually four. So those four things are what we're going to cover. (laughs) Because if you are aware of a resurrected Jesus, what about this? The tomb, they ran back and told their friends. The disciples at Emmaus, we got to tell people about this. The disciples at the end of the book, we got to go tell the world about it. The book of Acts is permeated with I mean, James and Peter and Paul, they couldn't shut up about it. It was in the middle of everything they said. We believe this guy. And boy, by the way, he resurrected from the dead. A verifiable fact, by the way. If you've been around the world, you know that when someone is revered and is a deity considered, when not if, when they die, their grave is then venerated and people travel from all over the world to see it. The reason there is no grave to be venerated for Jesus is he ain't there he wasn't there. There was no early church building a thing around this body because it was gone. And the early church easily could have, the, the Romans, the, Saul could have said, look, we just, all we got to do is unlock this tomb. Just a second. I'll roll this dead, rotten body out here. We'll call. It'll be over. We're done. Shut these people down. It didn't happen because it couldn't happen because he wasn't there. And that said, this is the message for you and for I and the world. Your future exists. See, in the days of the Greco-Roman culture, uh, the pagans, they might have believed in some ethereal, but for the most part, they believed that when you're gone, you're gone. It's what secularists would believe. You're gone. It's over. You breathe your last breath. But that's not what Jesus was suggesting with the resurrected body. What Jesus was suggesting with the resurrected body is that, what does the Bible tell us? He was the firstborn of many of us. We will all. So your future, for those of us that have said goodbye to loved ones, your future is to see them again. For those of you that think, man, I'm, this is all I got in this life, and I've got to give it all, you know, live life to the fullest, YOLO, biggest crock of American BS. Because you don't only live once. You live again. It is there. It's real. And so we can then live with that, and that it is not just that we exist literally, but we exist in a personal way. It's not just me floating out into the atmosphere. And you might think, well, that's a silly thing to even think. But, you know, we've talked about, right, what did we say last week that uh, Heisenberg said that the first glass of the natural sciences is a gulp of atheism, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting. Here's a physicist that's getting close to the bottom of the glass. He's, there are physicists in uh, England right now in the UK that are saying this, and maybe you've seen this that they believe that inside of our DNA and our molecular structure is something that they don't know what else to call but a soul, and that that soul exists beyond us when we die, that it will return to the universe. Which, by the way, is a very just secular way of describing pantheism. I don't know if you've heard of Reza Aslan. Uh, Reza is a, uh, a CNN correspondent. He, he, this is, I'm frustrated with this guy at this point. I don't know him, but... He did a piece not long ago about voodoo in Haiti and talking about how it's actually this beautiful thing and it's just cultural. And, and it had nothing, literally to say, what about the single mom that just gave up her chicken that she needed for food, but she gave it to this voodoo whack job to try to get a curse removed from her. And now the kid can't eat. And he's over there saying oh, it's this beautiful thing. But anyway, so, so I have a, some problems with Reza. Um, but this article in the Washington Post was saying, it was basically the redefinition of Adam and Eve, you can go home and look it up. But he's a pantheist, and pantheists believe that God is everywhere, that we, we are God. That's what he says in the article. We are God. Don't worry about the forbidden fruit. Eat the forbidden fruit, direct quote from this article. But what pantheism then believes is that because we're God, when we die, we just return to the universe. Now, in fairness, in our world, we believe that, the circle of life, right? That we return to the ground, and then the ground you know, makes fertilizer, and then the food for the deer and this, this. We believe it because Celine Dion told us that in my heart, you go on, right? We believe this. And how sad it is if that's what we believe. Because if you're at the core of who you are, what's the most important thing? And I know the Christian answer, right? We're Jesus and our relationship. Take that and say, that's true. Next is your family. It's your children. It's your grandchildren. It's your parents. It's If I'm just returning to the universe, not only is that not personal, that's really sad. So when you, a secular humanist, whatever, says, oh, I'm not really afraid to die, I actually don't believe them. I think they're lying. Jesus was saying is that this is your, to be honest. I don't think it's accurate. And what Jesus was saying is that this is, your your future is certain and it's gonna be personal. Look, it's me, you know me, high five. I got a hole in my hand, you know it's me. You, will all know each other. There's a literal future that is personal and that it is absolutely certain. How cruel would it be to believe that there's a future for us? But then I can't guarantee that it's there. I could tell you that there's a future that's personal, tell you that there's a future that you could, you know, that you may or may not have, but, but he doesn't say that. Jesus, it is certain through Christ and what he did. See, the resurrection... We were at Costco yesterday. I'm going to tell you about the resurrection. i also tell you how much I love my wife. I went to Costco on a Saturday. Can I get an amen? I mean, something. I don't know how you people do that. But we sit down to eat because it's Costco and it's like $1.50 for like a whole Thanksgiving meal. And as long as for Thanksgiving you want hot dogs, right? So we're eating. But then we got to have the receipt to get out the door, right? And I got the lady and she's checking this time. Now it's Thanksgiving week. I'm thinking, we'll just wave us through a couple of us, not this lady. She actually says, no, 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 slow down. I got to check. <laughs> but you know why she let me out? Because I had the receipt because it was paid for. The resurrection is a receipt that is stamped throughout history that says it's paid for and you get through. There is no Costco lady alive that can draw you away from that. A different way of looking at it is if if you've you've been to jail or you know somebody in jail, you know that if you're sentenced, let's say 10 years, and you're out on the other side of those 10 years, and you have paid your debt to society, at the other side of that, the law has no hold over you on that because your debt was paid to society. You're free. Jesus' debt was paid for you. Him saying, go and tell the world now. you I died so you didn't have to. I lived the life you should, wanted to live but couldn't. Because of that, the debt is paid throughout, uh, throughout history. It is a certain thing. And then lastly, that it's just beyond your wildest dreams. That the resurrection says that we're going to resurrect. And look, I I get all like geeked out on the idea that, look, Jesus disappeared here and he appeared there, that they they didn't recognize him, that maybe there is something to this of what, that when Paul says a seed goes in the ground and it comes up looking like something else. So I don't know what that means for us other than I hope it's that, that whole walking through door stuff, like, I'm in. And if you think about it, if the laws of physics are suspended in the next creation, it makes sense because we're all held together like this illusion of we could actually pass through each other if it weren't for gravity. I don't know. I could geek out all day on that. But my point is, is that whatever it is, it's beyond my wildest dream. That what the Bible tells us is that eye has not seen and ear has not heard in 2 Corinthians what, what God has planned for those and prepared for you. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. For, like a little, a personal thing for you. And I don't know what it looks like for me. I know what it looks like for my wife is that a place where her husband doesn't leave the socks on the bathroom floor. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a place that's perfectly for her for where kids aren't leaving their stuff all over the floor. You know, maybe your kids don't do this, but they, you could tell the, the crime scene because like, the, the, the evidence is all the way to shoes here, socks there. So in eternity, I'm sorry, it's true if my kids are here. Um, so eternity is with you guys, but somebody picks up the stuff. Beyond your wildest dreams. Tim Keller says this. The biblical view of things is resurrection. Not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life that you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but, listen, will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. It's not just a consolation prize. Sorry that happened. We'll pay to have it cleaned. It's a literal restoration of something bigger and better. When Paul says, I count these things that have happened in my life as dung, that's a pretty big, the best that my world here has to offer is what my dog makes in the backyard. I'm counting it as that. For those of you who followed your dog around the neighborhood with the little Ziploc bag, which, by the way, I don't believe that they are aliens, but if an alien ever shows up and sees you with a Ziploc bag following your dog, who do you think they're going to think's in charge? <laughs> Take me to your leader. There he is. <laughs> so, you know, let that sink in. It's that in Paul's mind. Now, look, here is why this matters for me. And this is, as I've studied and prepared for this week, I just kept coming back to this. Because I know people who because they are faithful to what Jesus is saying, saying that because he raised from the dead, I'm now going to adjust my life to the truth. That because of that, they're single and they're not married yet because maybe they've gone to the mission field or because they're waiting for the person that represents who God wants for them and and it means they might not ever find that person this side of heaven. And so the the pity side of us is they're missing out. They might feel man, I'm missing out on all this on this side of heaven. But resurrection says, oh, no, 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 no. You being faithful to what Jesus is asking of you doesn't mean you're missing out. You're not missing out on anything. The restoration of the life you always wanted on the other side. A wedding, what does he say? A wedding feast of the Lamb. There are those that are in a bad marriage. Maybe some of you in this room, you're struggling because, man, we're just not getting along. He is cold. She is crunchy. And I just feel like I see all these other marriages that are supposedly happy and I'm never gonna get it because you're being faithful and you're walking out what it means to be a living sacrifice. I'm like, you're not missing out. Everything will be not only restored but made better on the other side. There's, he is not putting you in a position where you are sacrificing something and not getting it in return. You're getting something far better. I have friends, a few of them, who struggle with same-sex attraction. And they've decided that this side of heaven, because it's not Jesus, because Jesus resurrected from the dead, then I have to look at what Jesus said. They may go the rest of their life single, this side of heaven and celibate, but they're not missing out on anything. They're going to be restored in a way that is profound on the other side. For you men that struggle with lust, and you burying the hatchet and closing the computer on the porn, and you're, I'm not going to follow that woman out the door. You're not missing out on anything. You're going to get something way better on the other side. Amen. And this goes down the If you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, some of you believe that you give 10% of your income away. I and mean, if you live in a neighborhood that that's what, everybody else isn't doing that, you're 10% behind everybody else. Right, Because I'm giving away 10% of my money. I'm, am I sacrificing? And by the way, I live in a world where people give way more than 10% of their money away. What you guys did for William a couple weeks ago, $26,000 to plant three churches in West Africa. I, don't even, I haven't even heard anybody that's heard anybody that's done that in this small of a church. A couple of you wrote $6,000 checks. You're $6,000 back from your neighbor in their bass boat. But you're not sacrificing anything that won't be repaid. Again, the Ziploc bag with the pile of poo and it just carried around as a reminder. The, the best that this world has to offer is the equivalent of that. And if you don't, I, you can come to my yard and you can take some. I got, pl- I got plenty. <laughs> You're not missing out on anything because resurrection promises that it will all be restored in a way that is way more beautiful, way more profound. Our friends that live in northern Iraq, they've taken their children there and I bet they've thought some nights, man, what are my kids missing out on? Nothing. You mamas, where you followed the Holy Spirit and see the Holy Spirit led you to homeschool, what are my kids missing out on? Nothing. It's all in the other. That's what a literal resurrection means. That is the message and why it's worth us taking to the world, that through us following Jesus and believing that he died and resurrected on the third day, that it will change, it'll infiltrate our entire lives. Why is baptism so important? It's just us admitting that Jesus literally resurrected from the dead. It's not some decorative. We do communion because Jesus' body was literally broken. And if you're not there yet, I would ask yourself why? Have you done the work? Have you actually said, okay, do I really believe this or do I not? And if I don't, why? And if I do, why? And so that comes next time I got to say I'm a Christian or I'm a not Christian, that I can say, well, look, because I've looked at the resurrection of Christ and found it to be accurate, found it to be beyond a reasonable doubt. I've said it before, never shipwreck your faith on the questions. Figure out the answers and let the chips fall where they may. For those of us who already believe, keep bolstering, keep building your faith. For those of you that are struggling, I want you to know it's safe to doubt, it's safe to question. Jude says, Have mercy on those who doubt. I actually don't blame him. (laughs) Because if you really act, say, This is what the resurrection means, you understand the implications of it, I might need to take a minute to think about that. Have mercy on those who doubt. Don't panic. This ends our series, but it doesn't end the journey. I would encourage you to keep doing the work. Would you stand to your feet and let's pray? Jesus refers to himself as Messiah, which is king. Now, we don't know much. We don't really have a fond relationship with kings in our culture, Bow my knee to nothing. We threw over our kings. But a king is basically you are bowing to their authority, to their rule. And that's bad unless your king is good. Unless your king is awesome. Unless your king died for you and then resurrected for you. And if he did. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your decisions. And I hope you leave today knowing that the Messiah, the anointed one, crucified and resurrected, a literal Jesus in a literal body, is coming back again someday to here to take us and to put us into a new heaven, a new earth with a literal earth, a literal heaven. A, by the way, the earth at the end, right in Revelation, it's not the earth going away, it's Jerusalem coming down. It's a recreation. And I hope to see all of you there. On December 3rd, we're going to be doing baptisms. Again, we're, we're going to bring out the anointed horse trough and we're going to baptize. And if you today have, it's special anointed. It came from tractor Supply, so it's awesome. If you want to follow the Lord into baptism to say to the world, yeah, you know what? I believe that he died and that he resurrected. I would encourage you to join us. So you just email Mo at conduitchurch.com. Uh, and we'll get you set up for that. Let's pray. Too much and feels too little. Oh, much. Lord, as just a guy that thinks too much and feels too little, I'm so grateful that you will still speak to me. And I pray that you will in all of our hearts meet us, whether it's the gut or the heart or the head, that you meet us right where we are. And I know, Lord, in this room, there are those that are on the journey, the journey of faith. It took some time for Thomas. It took time for Saul. It takes time for some of us. And I pray that that their journey will continue and those around us will be patient and those of us that are are sure of our faith, that do feel a certainty about it, that we'll have mercy there and at the same time that we'll continue to do the work to bolster and build our own faith. And thank you, Jesus, for (laughs) for resurrecting. That's amazing. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Guys. Have a happy Thanksgiving. I'm praying for you to have good, safe travel wherever you're going. And if you're here, uh, have a happy Thanksgiving.